I am so glad you're here. This reminds me of the COVID days when uh, I used to be, me and a camera, that's all it was. And so today we are going to uh, dive into a very difficult, complicated section in the book of Philippians. It is a challenging section of scripture, so you need to stay with me. And I'm assuming that the reason you showed up in church uh, on a snow-packed day is because you love the Word of God and you want to go deep, right? So today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go a little deeper than normal into the Word of God, but this is so essential to your understanding of what it means to live out the Christian life in this world. So with that in mind, let's pray, and I'm going to jump, jump right into it. Father, thank you for your great, great truth of your Word, God. I pray earnestly, God, that you'll take uh, this time that we spend together and use it, Father, for your honor, for your glory, for your majesty. I pray, God, that I would have the filling of the Spirit so I can communicate this in a way, God, that is understandable, is powerful, is practical, God. And I pray, God, that you will be honored in everything we do here today. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and powerful and awesome name. Amen. So, so today I want to break this section of Scripture, these, these 11 power-packed verses, into three concepts. And uh, so you got to hang with me. If you zone out, you're going to miss some things that are essential to your understanding because this is a complicated section of Scripture. So the three categories that we're going to look at is the great enemy. You and I have a great enemy. You'll be surprised by what Paul says it is. The second thing we're going to look at is the great exchange. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the great escape. So let's start with the great enemy that, that the Christian has in their life. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, that's where we're going to begin. And this is what it says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, to understand this section of Scripture, you need to understand something. Everywhere Paul went and taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he would leave that town, he would have people follow him and they would actually, they would actually try to contradict the things that Paul said. So the bottom line is these false teachers, what they would do is that they would, they would honestly uh, talk about the idea of circumcision as the way to salvation. So we're going to talk about what that means along the way. And uh, I, I know that as you look at this, it's going to be powerful in your life. So Paul is a very sarcastic teacher at times. Honestly, he is. And uh, so he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's talking about those people who would come behind him and say, you know, that Jesus is great. That Jesus is okay. But the reality is, is that... What you need to be saved, you can't come to Jesus unless you are circumcised. He's talking to adult male Gentiles. Can you imagine what they would think at that point in time? If they were, you know, if they were Gentiles, they honestly wouldn't have been circumcised in that culture in that time. And so this is a very, very contradictory thing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to say to you that in reality... Um, 
Circumcision is a great thing, but it also can become a bad thing. And we're going to look at how that works itself out in the Christian life. So today, I'm going to suggest to you that what circumcision represents is legalism. And legalism is a counterproductive thing in the Christian life. And I'm going to suggest to you that all of us have some form of legalism in our lives. And you'll be surprised as you examine your own life, as I unfold it for you, you'll be surprised at how much legalism is actually there. So he calls them evildoers. Why does he call them evildoers? The reason is, is that they are diminishing the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what legalism always does. Legalism always diminishes the blood of of Jesus Christ. And this is so contrary to the gospel. And he, he uses this sarcasm calling them those who mutilate the flesh. And so that's the context of what he's going to say. Then he says, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. There is a circumcision for the life of the believer. And this is what happens. The moment you get saved, the very moment you get saved, what happens to your life is that there's a circumcision that happens in your heart. The flesh, the evil is cut away and it gives you the ability to receive God in such a powerful and great way. So if you are a believer, you have been circumcised in your heart. Do you understand that? That is so good and so powerful. So he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, the glo and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has, re has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Paul is saying, if there's anybody anywhere who could add anything to the blood of Jesus Christ, it would be me, but I can't. That's what he's saying here. He said, look at my life. There's nobody, there's nobody more zealous than me. I don't think there's anybody more zealous than me. I mean, I, I went out and persecuted the church in my zealousness. And he's saying, but what you're going to see, what, he's, what you're going to see as he continues, is you're going to see that none of that mattered to Paul and none of that matters to God. The great enemy of the Christian life is legalism. So let's talk about legalism in the 21st century. What does it look like in our lives? Obviously, we're not Jewish believers. In fact, most of us are not Jewish believers. So what, is, what does legalism look like in the 21st century? So here's what it looks like. The basis of legalism is the idea that somehow I can earn favor with God through my performance. I can... Do something religiously that is going to, that's going to gain me favor with God. It's going to give me standing with God. And there's a lot of things that you could, you could count as a legalistic thing. Uh, any act that we can do can either be an act of devotion or it can be an act of legalism, depending upon the motive for which you do it. So here's the deal. I am so grateful that many of you came to church. Well, I shouldn't say the word many. Some of you came to church this morning God bless those online. Amen. We love you. But the reality is, if you came to church thinking somehow, some way, that your week this, way, this week would be better, 
that somehow that you would have some, your prayer life would be more effective, that somehow you would have a bit better standing with God, I'm gonna tell you, you're gonna be sadly disappointed because none of those things are true. The only thing you get by attending church is that you get to look at me. I mean, I'm saying that going to church is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You should, I'm glad you're here. Your devotion is great. That's amazing. But what I'm telling you is that if somehow, some way, you're equating going to church with the idea that it's going to enhance God's ability to, to speak to me, to none of that is true. None of that is true, as you're going to see as the text unfolds. So the basis of legalism is the idea that I can earn favor with God through my performance in any way, shape, or form, whether religious or non-religious. Legalism is Jesus' death plus anything else. That's what legalism is. It's Jesus plus something for my right standing before God. This is so important for us to understand as it relates to how I then live out my Christian life. Legalism is the direct or indirect attachment of behaviors, disciplines, or practices to, uh, in order to achieve salvation and right standing before God. Even Bible reading can be an act of legalism. Even Bible reading, prayer, any of, any of the disciplines in the Christian life, when they're done for the wrong reasons, can become an act of legalism and therefore not gaining favor, but actually it is something that is sin in our lives when done from the wrong motive. Do you understand that? This is so important for you to understand because a lot of times people will come to church and they'll, the reason they come is to check off the box. I've, I've, I've done my devotion to God. If that's what you do, what I'm telling you, you're approaching coming to church in a legalistic perspective. Prayer, Bible reading, witnessing, all those things are amazing things that we can do when they're done for the right reasons. But when they're done to add something to the blood of Christ, I'm telling you, it is an act of legalism. It is self-redemption. Legalism is all about me and not about God. The example that is used in Scripture is circumcision, but the reality is that was their culture in that day. And as we fast forward, there are many ways, many acts of devotion that you can imagine become acts of legalism. Then the Bible says here, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no, listen to this, and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence whatsoever. In the Torah, God commands Abraham to undergo circumcision at, when he was in his 90s. Can you imagine that? As a part of a covenant between him and generations to follow who would eventually become the Jewish nation. It was a sign to them of their right standing before God. The problem was that it was designed to be distinctively a Jewish sign. And now, as, in, as we're studying this book of Philippians, there are people that are going, wait a second here, you have for, for you to believe on Jesus first and to be saved, you have to first come to God through circumcision. No, so the essence of legalism is trusting in any religious activity, any. It's putting our confidence in the practice rather than in the person. And listen carefully. With, when this happens, without fail, it will lead to love the practice more than loving God. 
That's what will happen. It'll be, the practice will become more important to you than loving God. Then we read in the scripture, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he, as touching the law, he was blameless. Now that brings us, that's, that's the great enemy. The great enemy in your life is the idea of legalism. And I'm telling you, uh, you probably, no, I'm gonna say this again, you have legalism in your life. There are things in your mind that need to be set right. There are things and practices and things that are good that ha you do in your life, maybe for the wrong reasons, which creates a, a pushback from God himself. So the great enemy of the Christian life is the idea of Christ plus anything. Christ plus anything. And you can see how when I do that, it devalues the death of Jesus. It makes it just an ordinary thing. When I add anything to Jesus' blood, it devalues that blood when it comes to salvation. Now that brings us to the great exchange. That's found in verse seven. Verse seven says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For whatever gain that I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The great exchange is simply this. It is when I come to realize that I can't add anything to my salvation, when, when I have that in my mind, what happens is I realize in my spirit that there's nothing that I can add. So therefore, I just, I accept the righteousness that God has for my life. The great exchange is my sin for Christ's righteousness. I exchange my sin for his righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in him. The result of that is, is that I now have a new perspective. And legalism is the enemy. I have this great exchange. I come to the end of myself and I begin to trust solely in the blood of Christ and I have this new perspective. Verse eight says, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So I wanna show you this word here. This word is a very interesting word. For, the sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That is kind of a watered down, nice way of saying manure. It's, he's, Paul is saying, my righteousness before God, my personal performance before God, I suffer loss for that, I give it up, I throw it away, and I count it as manure for the sake of gaining Christ. Intimacy with God begins here. You want intimacy with God? It begins with the idea that nothing that I can add, nothing that I do, nothing that I can perform will give me a greater closeness to God. In fact, it actually separates me a bit from God when I think about trying to come to God in a self-righteous manner. That's the new perspective that Paul had. So Paul's own righteousness, this is a math equation, Paul's own righteousness equals manure equals manure. His righteousness equals manure. Now, until I get there and understand that, 
then I'm going to be I'm going to be just swimming in the Christian life and going nowhere. Then that brings us to a new position, verse 9. And be found in him. What happens is, is when I come to an end of my own sense of righteousness and in a few minutes I'm going to show you how we can measure it in our own life whether we really whether we're really trusting in Christ's blood or we're trusting in our performance. I'll show you that in just a minute, but hang with me for a minute. So this phrase, and be found in him, is so essential in the New Testament, in him. Be found in him. The goal of the Christian life is to be found in him alone. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. So the bottom line here is that I... In a humble way, we say this to you, I am as righteous as Jesus Christ. That sounds at first glance like it's blasphemy, but it's the absolute truth of Scripture. I'm as righteous as Jesus because my righteousness comes from Him. It comes from Him, being found in Him. So when God sees me and sees you, He sees Jesus, he looks at you, he looks at your life through the lens of his son, Jesus. And never apart from Jesus, I am inseparably linked to him. And that is such an amazing truth. I mean, this is life changing when you understand it. So my, my new position before God is before I was separated from God in my sin without hope, hopeless in every way, and now I find hope because my new position is united with Jesus Christ and there's nothing that I can do that will ever, ever separate me from that. Nothing that I could ever do that will ever cause God to say, that's it, you're done, because me being found in him wasn't dependent upon me anyway. It was dependent upon what he did in my life and the amazing grace of God starts with him and ends in him. Bottom line. So I'm found in him and it is this new position and I have this immeasurable worth because of that. You know how much I'm worth? I'm gonna tell you my net worth right now on stage. I'm gonna be very vulnerable about how much I'm worth. You know how much I'm worth? My net worth is simply this. I am worth God's son. That is my net worth. That is your net worth. What is my worth? It is, the, I'm worth God's son. I, I, got an, I got an assignment for you, a homework assignment, that will be easier than the last one I gave you. Last time I told you, told you to go 24 hours without saying an unkind word, and most of you said I failed, right? You, or you said I ignored your homework assignment because <laughs> I knew I couldn't do it. I've got one you can actually do now, okay? Is that good? I'm gonna give you an easy assignment. What I want you to do is I want you to look yourself in the mirror this week, starting, t- starting today, you don't have anything to do this afternoon. It's snowing, right? You don't have any place to go. In fact, we're going to stay three hours together so we can understand the Word of God. And uh, so this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do starting today. I want you to look yourself in the mirror every day for the next year. Somewhere, I mean, you look at yourself every day in the mirror, right? You liars out there. I'm just saying. You lo- let, me ask, let me ask that question again. You look at yourself in the mirror every day, Right? I mean, men, you have to shave. Do you shave without a mirror? No, you, you have to, you know, you'd cut yourself. 
And, uh, you know, if you're a woman, and you, you know, you'd have your makeup on backwards. I mean, if you didn't look in the mirror. You look in, your mirror, in the mirror every day. So why don't you add something to that discipline and say out loud in the presence of God, I am worth God's son. Because that's what the Bible says. Your worth is in him. You are worth God's son. I got a money back guarantee. If you do that for a year, next year at this time, your life will look different. You'll, it'll look completely different than it looks today. Being found in him, my righteousness is in him. So let me give you a practical illustration that'll help you unpack this in a way that is so good. So uh, my brother-in-law collects baseball cards. And so I'm kind of familiar with him. I've never had, but he, you know, he's an expert in it. There used to be a baseball card printed called Future Stars. And that was a collection of three people on one card. They were normally rookies. And uh, there's, today there's one card that is extremely, extremely valuable as, and compared to other cards around, around the world. And this is how it works. The first player on this card was a guy by the name of Jeff Snelder. Anybody heard of Jeff Snelder? I hadn't either. He's on this card that has, a, it's worth a lot of money. Jeff Snelder. The thing about Jeff Snelder is he played one year, pitched in 11 games, and his career was over. The second player on this card was Bobby Bonner. He played four years, a little better, but only appeared in 61 games. He had eight runs batted in. That was his claim to fame. And yet he's on a card that's worth a lot of money. The last one uh, played 21 years, appeared in over 3,000 games. He had nearly 3,200 hits, 431 home runs, and his name was Cal Ripken Jr. Ever heard of him? And because these other two people had the fortune as a rookie to be placed on the same card as Cal Ripken, they now possess a card that is worth a lot of money, hundreds of dollars. You know, this little piece of paper worth hundreds of dollars simply because their picture is on the same card with Cal Ripken. Now think about this. You are on the same card with Jesus and there's nothing that you can do that will ever change that. Your worth is found in who you appear with. That's your worth. That's good, man. That is so good. I am worth God's son. I appear with him. And when he appears the second time, the Bible says, I will appear with him. I will appear with him. Why? Because I am inseparably linked to Jesus. And nothing that I could ever do. There's no amount of sin. There's no amount of bad practice. There's no amount of things that I could do that ever, it could ever change that. I can't sin my way out of that because God's grace exceeds all the sum total of my sin. It exceeds that. By the way, that's not a license to go out and sin because the reality is, is that if you do, you'll get a little discipline from God. And you don't want that, Right? So you don't want to do that. You want to, you want to live a life that has the love of God that flows out of your life. And so a couple of weekends ago, I was teaching something similar to this. I think it was about a month ago. Then there was a guy on Sunday night. He came to me in the lobby, in the foyer out there, and he said, you are a false teacher. How dare you teach? And, and that he went on and on and on about how we had to earn and how we had to prove and, and how, you know, his language just betrayed him. 
And uh, of course, I, you know, all, you always think about these things after the fact. Uh, I, after, I knew he was a Jehovah Witness. I knew he was just by his language. What I wanted to say to him that would have driven him over the edge was, um, Yahweh is displeased with you right now because they don't want to use the word Yahweh. And that would have, you know, exposed who he really was. But just because, you know, I taught this, I was accused of being a false teacher. But what I'm telling you, if I'm a false teacher, Paul's a false teacher. Because this is exactly what Paul said. I am worth God's son. I'm inseparably linked with Jesus. And that is what gives me the value. We also have a new possession. Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that that depends on faith. So as I see myself, I need to begin to see myself in a different way. If you see yourself as just a sinner, guess what you're going to do? You're just going to sin. Right? Look at me out there. Come on. Give me eye contact if you're watching online. If you see yourself as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If I see myself as just a sinner, then that's how I'm going to live my life out. If I see myself with this new possession, this new possession of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if I see myself that way, I'm going to live my life out that way. I possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is the great exchange. It wasn't fair to Jesus. Completely lopsided here. He got sin, got death. We get his righteousness and life forevermore, forever and ever and ever, and the righteousness of God imputed unto us. That's our new position, uh, our new possession. Then we have a new, uh, a new passion for him. And we've, this is found in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. It says that I may know him. See, this is how it works. When I get what I just said, when you get what I just said, when the lights come on, when you recognize there's this ex- that you had an enemy, you, you reject, reject legalism as a way of thinking about God, and you have this, and you understand the great exchange, out of that flows a lifestyle that is completely different than the old lifestyle. And a new passion takes place in your life. So when you know this, when you know with all of your heart, this is how it's going to flesh itself out, that I might know him. This is the great desire that will happen in your life. When you know this to be true, this will be your passion in life, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might know him. When I really get this, then I get the idea that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and and sharing his sufferings, and I do that gladly because of all that God has provided for me, because I know that when I share in his sufferings, I'm going to know him, becoming like him in his death. This is the great passion. This is the great passion of those that genuinely, listen to me carefully, know Christ. I'm not talking about know about Christ. I'm talking about those who know Christ. If you want intimacy with God, it's through Philippians chapter 3. Rejecting legalism, accepting the great exchange, having this new passion that flows out of your life that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. So we see the great enemy, the great exchange. Now lastly, we come to the great escape. 
Philippians 3.11, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, that seems to contradict what I just said, right? That by any means I might attain. That in other words, it seems like it seems like there's something left open here, that it's not a certain deal, that you know, Paul, it seems that face value that I might that I might somehow lose my salvation. But that's not at all the case. And so let me build that case. The great escape is the great hope of eternal life. And the, I want you to pay attention to the phrase that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. That's a way of talking about eternal life. There are two resurrections according to the book of Revelation, our favorite book that we study every day. Amen. There are two resurrections, two resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. First resurrection, second resurrection. You do not want to be a part of the second resurrection because if you're there, you are going to end up in the lake of fire. And that's not a pleasant place to be. The first resurrection is a resurrection of the righteous. And this is a way of Paul saying eternal life. The great escape is the great hope of eternal life as represented in the phrase resurrection from the dead. This life, this life is not the end goal. It's not the end goal at all. And I'm just simply saying, uh, when Paul says that by any means possible, he's talking about what he's just said in the previous verses. This has a context to it. That I might reject legalism, accept the except the great, the great exchange, and out of that comes the hope of eternal life. And I'm just simply saying to you, listen carefully, this hope of eternal life has so much attached to it. And so the question is, how do I attain the resurrection of life? How do I know, how do I know that I'm not legalistic? How do I know that I've accepted the great exchange? And how do I know that I'm a part of that first resurrection? That's a great question, right? So let me tell you how you know whether or not that's true of your life. The answer is, what are you focusing on? And what I mean by that, are you focusing on what God has done for you? Or are you focusing on what you are doing for God? There are a lot of people that'll end up apart from God who were religious, but not saved. Many shall come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Why? Because these people are focusing on what they were doing and not what Christ had done for them. Hear this loudly and clearly. By focusing on what Christ has done for me, that's the secret sauce to the Christian life. That's the secret. That's how I can have a confidence that I'm gonna be a part of that first resurrection is when I focus on what Christ has done for me. So how do I know if I'm doing that? So I have a litmus test for you. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name Tim Keller. He's deceased now. And uh, I used to love to read Kim, uh, Tim. And uh, this is what he writes and uh, it's very telling. He says, pastors often hear 
he's writing on behalf of pastors. He says, pastors often hear, I've worked my fingers to the bone for this church and what thanks do I get? I've worked my fingers to the bone and what thanks do I get? And then he writes this. Is that the way it is? Your service for thanks? Are you in your right mind? Are you in your right mind? Servanthood begins, serving Jesus begins where gratitude and applause ends. If you get your feelings hurt because you didn't get recognized for what you did or are doing, you're focusing on you and not what Christ has done for you. That's the truth. You get your feelings hurt, people leave the church all the time because they say, nobody recognized what I was doing. I'm working my fingers to the bone. I'm just saying, when that's the case, you've got it all backwards. You don't focus on what you're doing for Christ. You focus on what Christ has done for you. It's the game changer. It's the secret sauce of Christianity. Focusing on what Christ has done for you. It, it's, it changes everything. Now, I'm just gonna say some things to you that out of my personal life that are vulnerable. And um, this time I really actually am being truthful. It is vulnerable. So, Paul says that he counted everything loss for the sake of knowing Christ. His focus was on the work of Christ, right? He's focused on what Christ has done, had done for him. So he was able to let loss, he was able to let it go. So in my life the last few years, I've had a measurable amount of loss. Lost my health, lost my son. Today is my brother's birthday if he was still alive. Lost my brother. Loss. How do you get through that kind of loss? Some of you are going through loss in your own life. Maybe a loss of a job, loss of a spouse, loss of anything. How do you get through loss? And the answer to that question is, you don't focus on loss. You focus on what Christ has done for you. That's what gets you through it. My friend, that's worth the price of admission today. You focus on what Christ has done for you. The only way that I could survive what I've been through is by focusing on what Christ has done for me. It's His work. It's what He's done for me. And at my weakest moment, He saved me. He imputed value in my life. I exchanged my old life for His life. I have the better life now because of Him. I find myself in a place focusing on Him every day. And by focusing on Him every day, no matter what comes your way, you're able to deal with it. And you're, you're counting loss, all good for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what Paul said. That's what Paul said. Counted all loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So give up your life. 
and live his life. Let his life live through you. Join him in what he's doing. Focus on him every day. The secret sauce of Christianity is not focusing on you, not getting your feelings hurt, not getting, not getting all twisted around because something didn't go your way. You focus on him. Does that make sense to you? The great lie is legalism. The great exchange, my life for his life. And the great escape is that one day I'm going to hear a trumpet. I'm going to hear a trumpet. And in, that, in a moment of time, I'll be snatched away and I'll have a life that is beyond description in this life. That's the great escape. But until then, I focus on Him and His work and what He has done in my life. And I'm telling you, that it doesn't get any deeper than that. It doesn't get any better than that. That is the secret of living out the Christian life. His work, not yours. And one last thought. Somebody said, well, what about James? Somebody said this to me in the foyer this morning. What about James? Show me your faith and I'll show you your works. I'm simply saying, I don't focus on my works. I let them flow out of a life that is just filled with what Christ has done for me. And what naturally comes is a life filled with good works. That's how it works. I don't focus on the good works. I focus on Christ. And out of that flows everything that I need. May God bless you. May God open your eyes. May God show you that your loss is actually great. It's gain for the sake of knowing Jesus.